0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Andrew Fenton Cooper, uh, one of my colleagues from just down the road at the University of Waterloo. With Andy's help, I hope to explore uh, the past, the present, and a little bit of the future of the leader-led forum, uh, the BRICS. The BRICS, as many of you would know, uh, was an acronym that was coined by our colleague um, Jim O'Neill, who uh, was an analyst uh, at Goldman Sachs in 2001. At that time, he uh, identified uh, the BRICS as a group of uh, emerging economies growing at a very uh, quick rate and likely to continue to do so into the future. I hope that we have the opportunity, Andy and I, to explore some of the institutional elements of the BRICS, but also looking at it policy uh, perspectives uh, early on and now and into the future. Andy is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo. He's written many books. Uh, One book he uh, he and I edited uh, in 2010 was titled um, Rising States, Rising Institutions." Since then, he's written other books on these informals, including With Ramesh Thacker, a book on the G20, uh, and his own book on the BRICS, A Short Introduction, it's called. So let's welcome uh, Andy, and we can begin a discussion about the BRICS. So uh, welcome, Andrew, uh, to our very plush studios for this podcast, episode five on the BRICS and the BRICS Summit. Thanks, Alan. It's good to be here. Uh, There's a lot to talk about in terms of the BRICS, both in terms of their uh, origins and their substantive value. Good, good. I'm looking forward to the discussion. I hope uh, our audience gets to enjoy this as well. Um, so let, let's start off with just kind of a you know, little bit of the big picture, uh, you being a close observer of what you and I have described as the informals, the G7, G8, G20, in other words, these leader-led summits. So what is the brick, uh, and now what are the bricks? Can you give us some insight? Well, in terms of composition, we've seen the bricks move
1: from this original group uh, China, Brazil, India, uh, Russia expanding towards South Africa. But in sub- substance and style we can see some sort of carryover from the other informals. Style is particularly interesting because we can see sort of improvisation, right? This, this sense, I mean, looking back at the Fortaleza uh, brick summit, we see that the Chinese leader didn't want to come, earlier, he wanted to come when the, the, the FIFA World Cup was on, so they changed the date of the summit. And I think this is interesting, this, this is what we, we both uh, drill down in terms of the informals. There's a lot of borrowing that takes place from the G20 and from the G7, the use of Sherpas, the theater around the the leaders, the the sense of spectacle. I mean, in some ways it's different, because when you look at the leaders of the BRICS, there's a kind of a sense of wanting to kind of up the ante from the the G7 the G20 it's 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 holding hands it's hugging it's a, it's it's a little different from the sort of more cold rationality of the the other uh, groups so again they're
0: different but they're they're similar in some of the characteristics so it's uh, kind of less of a political calculus and more more informal than we would see otherwise uh, Uh, certainly the G20 but even the G7? I think in some ways because they're sounding each other out I mean in terms of the
1: the composition I mean these are not sort of natural partners in some ways I mean certainly Brazil uh, to some extent South Africa are not natural partners so this this is sort of building up a kind of a club dynamic a -hmm. a dynamic that
0: again plays quite well to the the informality of, 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 of the group. All right So it would appear that the first uh, BRIC leaders' summit in 2009 in Russia at at Katarinburg, right, Uh, that the Russians were at the very heart of the creation of the BRICs, notwithstanding the fact that the original acronym, in fact, was a product of Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs. Um, So why was Russia interested, or so interested, in creating this forum, which uh, subsequently, you know, Forbes magazine described as this motley crew This is a really interesting question because, of course, the BRICS have a number of
1: inventors. I mean, Jim O'Neill certainly takes uh, a a lot of the kudos for kind of publicizing it way back in in 2001, 2003, comes back with another paper. Even the Brazilians, of course, when you look back to President Lula, in some ways he was the... The, the image of the BRICS. This the, is the
0: president of Brazil. Bra-
1: I mean. Brazil back yeah. in back in sort of that early period. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, a different period now, and now sort of compromised and uh, uh, serving some whether it's fairly or unfairly, in jail in, in Brazil. But I think you shouldn't leave out the Russians. The Russians were the the, the, the actor that was probably had the big geopolitical interest in, in trying to create a different group. And of course, in some ways, this was paradoxical because the Russians had already entered into the, the G7, making it the G8. So in some ways they were already inside the, 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 the hub club, if you want to call it that. But at the same time, we can see, and there was a lot of strategic thinking. Uh, Primakov, who was one of the big sort of geopolitical thinkers of Russia, uh, came up with the concept of the RICS. You know the mm-hmm. Russia, India, and China, and then, of course, I think in a in a stroke, I mean, in some ways, the same sort of genius as Jim O'Neill had was to sort of extend this to to Brazil and see it as a as a as a mixture of countries, not just big countries that Jim O'Neill had, not just big markets, but countries that had some sort of geopolitical focus, but also countries in some ways were were frustrated or had grievances within the system, whether it was because they didn't belong to the UN Security Council whether they were sort of outsiders and, and sort of pushed uh, you know backwards you know the dissolution of the Soviet Union and so on so the Russians sort of be were sort of catalysts I think in terms of that 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 activity
0: well you know what's interesting is they seem to be in some ways odd man out they had just they had just been included in the g8 or yeah. or well, it was a little bit earlier, 1998, but nevertheless, I mean, they, they were now in what was then the big club, uh, and, you know, they seem odd in the sense that as, a, you know, rising powers, the one obvious power that is not a rising power is Russia. So what, what was in it for them in doing this? I think this sense, paradoxically,
1: that they were declining. And, of course, uh, this was very much at odds with this image of the BRICS with, with Jim O'Neill. Certainly, the Russian economy is, is very dissimilar to the, the, the activities and the, the structure of the other, the other countries. But, of course, the Russians did have some skills and some prowess that the other countries didn't have. They could use their position within the UN. Mm-hmm. Some of the early meetings at the foreign ministry level were around the UN. We see Lavrov, a, the kind of long-standing foreign minister of Russia, being able to to host some of these meetings. Uh, the skill set, uh, but also because of their tradition within the Cold War they, as a superpower, they also had that that ambition to, to build and of course, this is what the Russians seem to be able to do and and uh, uh, in a way where the other countries didn't. And of course, here we have to sort of look perhaps at the other countries. China would sort of stand out as the country that had the economic might, that had the ambition. But of course, in the period of 2008, 2009, uh, China was still sort of playing sort of back, uh, you know, following or leading from the, uh, the rear in that sense. Mm. So again, allowing Brazil to some ways, uh, move ahead, again, in the charisma of Lula, allowing the Russians, in terms of this sort of back uh, room, to, to some extent, even, of course, with the, the summit, to, to play up their, their own rule, role within BRICS.
0: Hmm. So, um, uh, our good colleague from Brazil, in fact, Oliver Stanko, uh, post-Western world, uh, wrote a book on the BRICS called The BRICS in the Future of the Global Order in 2015, and there he uh, suggested, indeed from the start, many argued that the BRICS grouping was inadequate for a serious analysis because of the differences between the BRICS, much greater than what was seen as their commonalities. Many analysts and observers have repeated this view of diversity over the question of commonality and community. So why, uh, again, obviously, uh, uh, I guess it's more as a group. Why did they uh, seek them uh, seek to be part of this, and and how did what are we to suggest about the addition of South Africa? I think it's a very good question. I mean, Oliver's book is very good, and he he, he points out, of course, a lot
1: of the, the, the differentiation between the countries. Uh, mm-hmm. Two of the countries are within the UN Security Council. Mm-hmm. There's certainly uh, uh, the other countries that want into permanent uh, membership. Uh, India, uh, Brazil, and to some extent South Africa. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is why they play other groups up as well. There's, there's this IPSA group where the three outsiders of the UN Security Council sort of uh, formulate and, and push to some extent.
0: And the IPSA was India, India Brazil, Brazil, and South, South, Africa. South
1: Africa. Again, right. some people would interpret this as kind of democratic countries with sort of civil societies, but others, of course, more geopolitically interested or oriented would say these are the countries that, again, are campaigning to, to be within the, the UN Security Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's territorial disputes. We can talk more, certainly, you know, how this has influenced recent uh, BRIC summits, uh, particularly between China and India. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, even if there's these differences, the similarities, and I think it comes back to the Russian question as well, because as we've kind of talked around the edges, Russia has been an established power. It has been a superpower. Mm-hmm. But I I think what they do share, and Russians as much as the other countries, is a sense of frustration, a sense of grievance in some ways, that they haven't been in the mainstream uh, institutions of the, the 1945 period, the 1989-90 period. And in some ways, they want to kind of rebalance the, the international order. And of course, here we can see the, the, the the concentration of attention that the, the BRICS give to reform of the, the IFIs, the, the International Monetary Fund, the right. World Bank, uh, to some extent the World Trade Organization, even though of course I think the uh, the, the Global South countries, particularly Brazil, take a, a leading role within the, the WTO. But I think psychologically all of these countries see themselves as being kind of outsiders to these and, and in some ways uh, rule takers uh, rather other than the makers within these, these institutions.
0: So, so could you go as far, certainly some have argued, but would you be willing to go as far as saying this is somehow a nascent anti-hegemonic uh, grouping uh, clearly targeting in part those institutions you've just mentioned the, 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 of the in effect the liberal order and also you know very much uh, at least up until recently uh, american leadership in a, i mean is this what uh, what this the is, BRICS is all this about this is
1: one major view, and in
0: some ways it's kind of a
1: nascent alliance that mm-hmm. these countries, because they had this frustration or this this sense of grievance, are going to see a host of geopolitical issues in a very different way than the, the West, and to some extent we can see that on, on Iran, on other uh, issues. The complication, of course, comes back once again to Russia, because, of course, we can see that post- uh, 2014 with the uh, the intervention invasion of Crimea, Ukraine, it's been a tricky process of the BRICS. The BRICS have always put up a great uh, game in terms of sovereignty, holding sovereignty as a, as a paramount value within the international system. Mm-hmm. But of course, somehow other uh, countries and other actors would see Russian uh, uh, actions as, as contravening uh, sovereignty. But what I think is important to the BRICS is that countries aren't isolated. And again, we can see this even back to the, the G20 in 2014 at Brisbane, how the BRICS kind of rally around the, uh, the Russians and and sort and of push Russia uh, away from any sort of isolation or perhaps even exclusion or exile from the uh, the G20, which of course is, is important because we can see the exclusion from Russia from the, the, the G8 back to the, the G7.
0: Uh, so uh, this... I take it you see this partly in the frame of Crimea 2014 where there was a hint from the Australians who actually were hosting the G20 that after Crimea and given what many viewed as a serious violation of international law by the Russians in taking uh, Crimea that there was some nascent discussion about excluding uh, Russia from uh, from the G20, and there was a very strong reaction yeah. on the part of most of the uh, the BRIC members, notwithstanding, as you point out, that there are issues of sovereignty there. Is that is that what this yeah. is all about? Yeah. I
1: mean, in terms of the substance, it's kind of muted support for, for Russia, but not terribly Full scale, where the support is, is that Russia shouldn't be excluded Absolutely. from G20, and mm-hmm. this is, and this is also interesting in terms of the caucusing of the uh, the BRICS. There's always a meeting of the BRICS either before or after uh, the G20. There's a sense, in some ways, again, a parallel movement to the the G7 uh, that. That that the, the the countries want to kind of uh, uh, work together or kind of play out together what they should be doing or what the the results of the G20 what the influence or what the impact is on the on, on the BRICS and this is interesting because in that sense they say certainly in 2014 that the the G20 isn't owned by the Western countries that the BRICS have just as much ownership of the, uh-huh. uh, the 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 G20 and of course for getting back to the first question about informals, this is is interesting, that there are these kind of mixture of informals, with the G20 perhaps being at the center, but certainly uh, interesting and
0: important informals uh, radiating out from the G20. And it is uh, worth noting, of course, that all of the BRICS members, including, of course, South Africa, who who comes in uh, as a member of the BRICS in 2011, that they're all They're all members of the G20. Exactly. So, you know... And this is where the the Jim O'Neill model breaks down.
1: Jim O'Neill is very much against... South Africa being part of that, he doesn't see South Africa. I think to some extent from an economic position, quite rightly, it's not a big, powerful country. It doesn't have a huge middle class. It doesn't have even that elite consumer-oriented group that other countries within BRICS have. It certainly doesn't have the growth that that other countries and, of course, uh, really bringing this into uh, highlight is the fact that Goldman Sachs or indeed other uh, financial groups don't make uh, South Africa part of the secondary tier countries. Goldman Sachs doesn't have South Africa in the next 11, which is another sort of grouping of, of countries kind of beyond, but to some extent underneath the BRICS, not as big, not as powerful, not as sort of market uh, dominant as,
0: as the BRICS countries. So again, right. th- who, who, would, who would Goldman Sachs identify in the n 11 yeah. Not all of them, obviously, but in some examples. No, I mean, countries
1: that must probably appear in other informals, perhaps MICTA, which is kind of the, the middle power group. They would they would highlight Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea. Mm-hmm. But also, of course, some countries that aren't in these groups, uh, sort of the outliers, perhaps even rogues, uh, countries that perhaps are, are ran very explicitly, mm-hmm. or perhaps even a, a, a country like Nigeria, Nigeria that, that yeah. sort of competes with South Africa and always is, again, has its own frustration. Frustrations that South Africa gets its way into those organizations and Nigeria is kept out. And of course here it's Of reflection of the informals, Uh, the other finance ministers in the G20 have a long tradition of working with South African finance ministers. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of commonality to some extent of language. There's a sense of good infrastructure within uh, uh, the the South African uh, kind of hub, you know, gateway uh, model. But here, once also, I think you have to see that this is where China starts playing a major role. China really lobbies for South Africa to be included in the BRICS. And I think there's some hesitation from some of the other countries, particularly India, that I think sees that solid
0: core of those original members as being uh, enough of the BRICS. So why does China see uh, South Africa as such a valuable addition? I think partly just to have an African country. I mean, there is a a
1: sense that you have to, you steward from a Global South uh, country, obviously there's there's an image of South Africa from Mandela, post-apartheid South Africa, a country of kind of liberation, Mm -hmm. a country that, uh, even though it's a very different form of sanctions, has been sanctioned in the past. You know. But at the same time, of course, because of these characteristics that I've also already mentioned, the infrastructure, the language, uh, a good financial system within mm-hmm. South Africa, that there's a lot of individual attractions for bringing South Africa in as well. A sense that South Africa uh, can work. And perhaps this isn't an image that you have of Nigeria. The things don't work as smoothly. There's a lack of infrastructure,
0: even though, in economic, sure, sheer structural terms, Nigeria might be more important than South Africa. So, so kind of the parting of the ways, uh, O'Neill versus the geopolitics of the BRICS themselves. O'Neill seems to be driven, not unreasonably, by economic growth, uh, by economic. Uh, a success yeah. uh, and clearly all the BRICS countries with, with I suspect some questions around Russia actually uh, more recently and potentially Brazil but nevertheless the view that these are the country dynamic economic actors South Africa not even in the top 20 in terms of economic uh, uh, size so you can understand the distinction then that uh, yeah. Jim O'Neill would have yeah. versus... Jim O'Neill has a model that, that kind of looks
1: either, it's either cars or it's it's sort <laughs> of trains kind of racing ahead, right? on They're, they're on parallel tracks, but they're all moving forward. Mm-hmm. They're all getting bigger. They're all being more successful. right And of course, because of that parallelism, he doesn't have the same instinct or interest in what those countries are doing in commonality with each other. He sees them uh-huh. as kind of being on parallel tracks from a diplomatic or from a geopolitical perspective though, and I think this is our interest uh, um, that you have to see these countries working together or trying to work together and of course this is a bigger test in some ways rather than just seeing them as individual countries and and going back to again that, that original Goldman Sachs model, this is why I think it's misleading only to see BRICS sort of failing or being successful you know, there's a lot of cartoons Tunes about balloons or going through kind of the mud together. You know, it's not only seeing those countries rising and then collapsing or not mm-hmm. being as successful. I think you have to see them once they be, they turn to symmetry, once they turn to kind of these informal institutions, you have to see them in different ways. They have a huge stake in
0: trying and maintaining their, their diplomatic activity with each other. Mm-hmm. So, so what would you suggest... Uh, for an observer looking at it as the notable achievement then no, not necessarily economic because clearly uh, for some of the countries they have fallen on relatively difficult economic times, certainly since 2011. Um, so what would be the notable There's achievements ty- that you see? It? There's two types of achievement. One achievement of
1: course is, is almost the the, neg- the lack of negative, the sense that they've hung together. Okay. And, and again, going back to the previous questions, when you see them as a motley crew or a, a messy bunch, the instinct is that they're going to only have this sort of club structure organization for a short period of time and then all of these other difficulties are going to kind of wash them away or uh, Be formidable obstacles and of course from this perspective I mean we are moving into the 10th we've moved into the 10th anniversary 10th summit And of course from this perspective. This is this is very different from that more pessimistic image of the BRICS. So this is just one. This this club instinct that they built up these kind of informal rules about how they get around problems, how they consolidate uh, the the psychological similarities among themselves. But at the top of this, and of course this is where the new development bank, the BRICS bank, uh, is important, is that there's also signs that they can have sort of instrumental activities of a, of a common uh, nature that, that appear to work even though uh, from the early negotiations about the BRICS Bank or the New Development Bank, lots of contestation, lots of rivalry between India and China about the, the nature, about the, the structure of the bank.
0: So, so this, the bank that, that the collective group created, uh, the NDB, the New Development Bank, that's clearly an institution of note. Is there anything else that we can point to in terms of the BRICS, in terms of institutionalization? Well, I think you
1: mentioned in a a recent uh, blog about the G20 about uh, small ball activities, right? Uh, uh, Activities that probably don't grab everybody's attention. It's Mm -hmm. not kind of home runs. It's not sort of big dynamic things. But over the the period of the 10 years, I think both in terms of, of structure and in terms of process, we've seen lots of success. In some ways, very similar to to some of the successes of the G7 and the G20. On one level, we've seen successes of all of these kind of network approaches, right? The 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 the, the business councils around the uh, the BRICS, the yeah. academic networks, uh, networks around civil society. Even though to some extent these become more differentiated when. Uh, India or South Africa or Brazil host rather than, than than particularly China, but also at the same time kind of incremental process in a whole uh, different way where we see again just in the Johannesburg uh, summit we've seen a new. A center on vaccines we've seen a, a, a center on mm. on tourism we've seen a, a a push to have a a, a variety of, 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 of other sort of initiatives and of course there we can also reference the the kind of regional groups one that was always about to happen we're just wondering when it was going to happen the 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 regional center for the the new development bank in um, in, in in pretoria in South Africa mm-hmm. but then kind of out of the blue, we see another regional center in Sao Paulo in, in Brazil, and it just shows that there's sort of an institutional structure that once it's in place, sort of has a cascade effect, where we see lots of other sort of activities uh, uh, occurring that, that sort of implant or embed that activity in individual countries, particularly countries that was probably aren't the most powerful or the most dynamic. And again, I think we can see uh, both the South African case, but to some extent because of the political dynamics and. Brazil, that they wanted to, they being the BRICS, wanted to give something to Brazil to kind of show that there was. They were so part. They were part. And yeah. even with a kind of a, a transition government, even with the Temer uh, presidency that perhaps isn't uh, as supportive of BRICS as Brazil in the past
0: with, with, with Lula, mm-hmm. yeah. that, that they were still getting some sort of tangible benefits from the BRICS. I see. So uh, you've raised, and it of course has just recently occurred the 10th meeting of the BRICS leaders, uh, and in fact, it was in Johannesburg. Um, Is there something uh, truly notable uh, about uh, this particular meeting, other than the fact that it actually occurred? I mean, maybe it is just now something that I've described, the small ball kind of activity but i think when i was referencing small ball it was to say well you know in the face of current american foreign policy small ball seemed to be the the only possibility but i mean the bricks don't suffer per se from american foreign policy at least in the context of the of the group so what what do you is there anything we can point to in terms of Johannesburg? Again, on the the kind of lack of a negative is probably the most harmonious summit
1: for two or three years. We've seen a summit in India, a summit in China, where there's been all sorts of tension between hmm. China and India about definition of terrorist groups, about uh, questions sort of overhanging the summit because of Doklam. Um, the, the sorry, t- Doklam being the the, 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 the kind of territory. One of the <laughs> several territorial disputes between oh BRICS them, members BRICS members yeah. and of course you have to remember that in the early 1960s they uh, the border tensions flared up into an all you know short war between India and and China, and, and, and China. Yeah. so so the sense that that seems to be a, a memory that the sense that India and China sort of played well together within the, uh, the BRICS uh, summit. The fact that even though, of course, they're also doing parallel initiatives, India with, with Japan having a kind of a corridor initiative mm-hmm. in between Asia and Africa, and of course, uh, China uh, through the Bricks and Road Initiative uh, and of course uh, wider still the, the, uh, the Asia uh, Infrastructure uh, banks, Investment Bank, investment yeah. bank uh, mm-hmm. we can see that even though there there's tensions we don't see them flaring up it uh, was probably the only issue that that, that that might have flared up wasn't between India and China. It was perhaps between Russia and, and uh, South Africa, because we see that under the Zuma administration, uh, there was a... Prompt, this is the previous. The previous South African yeah. uh, government, uh, even though it's both... Uh, African National Congress uh, that there was a promise that South Africa would buy uh, quite a, a number of, of 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 nuclear reactors for for power to South Africa and again from from Russia from Russia mm-hmm. and and uh, the Ramaphosa government uh, has has sort of kiboshed that mm-hmm. saying was they're too expensive mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 not fitting the needs of of South Africans so again this is sort of showing that there are these kind of issues that that play up. But that issue didn't play up in terms of public uh, dynamics, but again, just the fact that it was held, the fact that none of these other issues uh, came surfaced and, and and were you know attracting huge negative publicity uh, shows that the club formation is 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 momentum. I think, which is which is important.
0: So On the other side,
1: I mean, there are some others, even though maybe it plays to the, the talk shop. If image that all of the informals have the sense of having a new initiative on kind of fourth industrial revolution. The sense that that uh, the China and India are sort of leading in some ways in in, in certain aspects of a, a, a kind of a post-manufacturing. Uh, so this uh, is the uh, future of work yes, issue. and in some ways, of course, this plays to some of the the themes that are coming up in the Argentina uh, G20, uh, G20 as well. Future yeah. of work, uh, artificial. Yeah. Yeah. intelligence yeah. Uh, and of course these are very pertinent to BRICS country, countries because of course some of them have been hollowed out, uh, some would say because of, of Chinese uh, you know, manufacture, production. production and yeah. manufacturing that, that South Africa, to some extent Brazil have certainly had a, a decline of, of, of kind of traditional manufacturing in, mm-hmm. in, in recent years. Mm-hmm.
0: Now there was some discussion uh, by the way and I'm sure you're more than aware of it of, of you know kind of the game maybe the journalists play of you know oh they're looking to expand uh, their membership uh, you know and so i guess the question is is that uh, likely that they're going to expand the membership and if they are what where do you kind of suggest that they're likely to pick from this is a game that's played in all the informals, you <laughs> yes. know, when we did see it
1: with the G7 expanding and then contracting, and yeah. G8 with Russia, we see a lot of sort of activity around the G20, you know, this kind of countries on the margins, Spain, for instance, that kind of gets a toehold and then kind of clings on to the G20. Uh, other countries, of course, getting invited, whether it's because of some institutional format, the president of, of, of groups, uh, regional groups, or even kind of functional groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that regard, it's not surprising that we see the same dynamic in the BRICS. And to some extent, we see the same sort of breakdown that we see from the South African question, that we see the push for China to have kind of a BRICS plus to, to bring in other countries where, where India is more defensive and is a bit more reluctant to have other countries, quite comfortable with the, the group as it, it sort of started out as. Um, in terms of uh, group, the countries that attend the BRICS, in the past we've seen that usually these are regional kind of allies or regional sort of entities that have good relations with the host. That's again why India had a hard time because of course they have some countries around it. India, Pakistan is the most notable, Sri Lanka to some extent, that that haven't had as good a relationship with, with 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 India. What we see in South Africa though is the first time that this seems to be almost a strategic choice of bringing countries in that aren't regional actors, that aren't regional sort of countries, neighborhood countries, but countries that was probably are kind of BRICS plus it from a geographic or from a, a functional or economic uh, perspective and of course probably three jump out here. Uh, certainly uh, Turkey uh, stands out as perhaps a, a very interesting kind of possible brick uh, Indonesia stands out mm-hmm. as, a, as 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 a, as a country, and to some extent, Egypt. Um, you know stands out as well. So you're having countries that aren't kind of regional partners or neighborhood countries but countries that have some sort of affinity with the BRICS from a geopolitical or geo perspective. I mean all of those countries can see themselves to some extent as as countries of the global south or certainly the Mm -hmm. Northwest west uh, countries that see themselves as having some economic strengths. Along the the Jim O'Neill model of the mm-hmm. BRICS, and some countries uh, perhaps preferring the, the the BRICS model to other models of informality, uh, or perhaps shut out of formal organizations. Again, Egypt has been a contender for security council yeah. uh, membership in the past. Turkey always feels that it's being kind of left out of the UN, feels the vetoes on summit has, has been uh, very problematic for Turkish interests. And then in Indonesia, I mean, was probably a country that has a big economy, that has a youthful population, that certainly has a traditional being, the global south, going back to Bandung in the 1950s big conference of uh, less developed countries but a country that was probably is more regional in instinct was probably doesn't see itself as a, a country of sort of global prowess or global sort of ambition mm-hmm. so again, all of these are candidates but it's probably all of those countries Turkey is the one and of course here because the president of Turkey Erdogan sort of came out and suggested that that Turkey goes into the BRICS that it become a member of the BRICS
0: You know, it's interesting because you did raise it that uh, obviously uh, Russia and uh, China are both uh, UN Security Council members and the others are not, though apparently quite desirous uh, of uh, becoming uh, more permanent or permanent members, depending on if reform is possible. But, I mean, what's interesting, it seems to me, is that and the communiques of the leader's declaration have never been very forthright with respect to promoting the um, Security Council permanence of it. Any of the other three. Yeah. Very
1: cautious. I mean, this is the
0: one of the many fascinating things of the club dynamics.
1: They play up the commonality. Again, IFI reform, reform of the International Monetary Fund, but play down these ones where there's tension or difference of I opinion uh, among the countries. And, and I take course, it there are differences. A of huge difference. And, and I mean, India particularly. I mean, I think anybody that's traveled to India or sort of talked to India. Uh, officials. There's an obsession, I think, in India about UN Security Council status. Mm-hmm. The sense that they missed out in the 1940s because they weren't independent. The sense that the real prize in the international system. And I think this has kind of flavored Indian kind of diplomacy in some ways, you know, to make it perhaps a little. Less robust in other ways because so much of the energy and the psychology, psychological interest is on the UN Security Council. Um, again, though, all of them see themselves as global south countries, all of them have a sense of frustration. So, again, there's, there's differences and similarities between those countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, as you're aware, uh, Mauricio Macri, Argentina is the host for the G20. I mean, it's a little surprising I maybe that he has not more directly reached out to the members of the G20 who are the BRICS. I mean, what what explains that or is there uh, some effort on the part of Argentina uh, to kind of attract uh, the particularly the BRIC members of the G20? I think Argentina has an internal split politically about what sort of
1: organization it feels. More comfortable with, mm. I think the the peronist movement and you know kind of the the populace from the past, going again, going back to the 30s and 1940s, feel more comfortable with the, a global south perspective. I mean, it's not all that many years ago where Argentina, I think, was chair the president of the the G77. You know, the group mm-hmm. of you know the, the the group of countries from the global south that have kind of had a collective. Uh, sense of solidarity since the, the 1960s and 70s. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a side of Argentina politics that sees itself almost as a, a quasi-Western country. I mean, much of the population of Argentina is from Western countries, Italy, Spain, even to mm-hmm. some extent Britain. Uh, and, and I think this gives a very different perspective. I mean, again, Argentine uh, presidents in the past have talked about Argentina even moving into NATO you know it's kind of a NATO plus you know so again as as anybody that knows something about Argentina there's like a bit of a schizophrenic sort of sense or a duality among so it's not surprising from this perspective that I think the the present government of Argentina is playing up more that that sense of the west the sense that they can do business with the Trump administration Mm -hmm. the sense that they, they're they're going to kind of They're open they're open for business. They're yeah. not gonna they're not gonna ruffle feathers. They've seen the experience of the recent G seven in Quebec, the, the sense that, that that the summits can break down. By a sense that it's 19 plus one, you know, my, uh, minus one or yeah. versus one, and this is what Argentina doesn't want within the uh, within the. Uh, and and again, I think the 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 reflections on the Hamburg summit in in Germany, where you know uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel has been kind of targeted by President Trump as mm-hmm. somebody that's kind of outside of his his sort of ambit of of, of friendliness. <laughs> friendliness, <laughs> you know. So again. Uh, uh, Argentina, under the present government, doesn't want to be in this position. Uh, okay. So again, this is a delicate <coughs> game. It's certainly uh, a, a game that could blow up for Argentina uh, if, um, you know, if, if if there are sort of a mood among other countries. But the host and the president of, of uh, institutions have some sort of ability to, to frame the agenda the way they want it, whether it's the G20 or indeed the
0: BRICS. Kind of the, the big ending question then for you, uh, Andy, um, you know, it's apparent that, you know, uh, there's uh, an element of chaos and turbulence yeah. that have been injected into the so-called liberal order since the arrival of President Trump. And so I guess the question is, you know, do, do you see the liberal order surviving? And does the, do, can the brick? the BRICS have a role either in hastening its uh, demise or in kind of maintaining uh, in some fashion uh, the, the framing of the liberal order as we've known it for 40, 50, 60 years. This is the huge question
1: because of course, from one perspective or through one lens, the countries of the BRICS present themselves as kind of the opposition to the order. This goes back. This is in the the blood of these these countries. Again, different types of trajectories. I mean, the Soviet Union slash Russia kept out of many of the institutions, of course, post-1945. But the other countries wanted to change the institution, going back to all the literature on the the group of 77, the new international economic order, Mm. the the rebalance or the transformation of the the economy through the 60s, 70s, 80s. But from a, a different lens, and I think this is the lens that we're beginning to pick up now, is that these countries are also supporters of the system. I mean, surprising supporters Mm -hmm. of the system. Even China, even though, of course, it's not a supporter of the system through all of the different uh, aspects, social, cultural, about human rights and other aspects. From a purely economic perspective, these are countries that support very much the liberal economic order, open borders, free trade, Uh, And, of course, this is what makes the bricks so fascinating, because they come about because of grievance, because of frustration, but in some ways, whether it's a present or a dilemma that's given them to by President Trump, now they can present themselves as the defenders of the multilateral trade system, the multilateral economic order, and sort of bridging from the BRICS out into these other sort of formal organizations, the WTO, and to some extent, of course, organizations that were uh, created by the West and created mm-hmm. by the United States. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a, a strange sense of, 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 as I mentioned, of duality uh, in this regard. There's opposition on one hand, and at the same time, supporting many of the ingredients. Because in many ways, those countries, China, India, to some extent, Brazil, uh, have, have really benefited from that system. Mm-hmm. They pulled out, as you well know, so many millions of people from poverty through that liberal economic order.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean strengthening the the view you've just uh, presented, of course, is the fact that at the Los Cabos uh, G20 summit, uh, in fact, uh, all of the BRICS supported uh, the provision of funds to the IMF uh, in 2012. And you would have thought, well, if you're really kind of anti, um, you know, the IFIs, that this was kind of the time to really hammer the institution, but they didn't. Even Brazil, who in some respects the most questioning of moving forward, did in fact uh, pony up and provide funding to the IMF. The difference from that period, though, is that they wanted a clear quid pro quo.
1: They were willing to put money in, but on the premise that the IMF would be reformed. In that process. Yes. Now, in some ways, it's much more open ended. Mm -hmm. It's not a sense that they're looking for a quid pro quo, Mm -hmm. you know, in instrumental terms, you know, in terms of deliveries by something concrete. And of course, this makes their supportership or their followership of the system, even more intriguing and, 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 and interesting. Because, of course, now they can present themselves. And indeed, this is the glue that I think in the Johannesburg summit that we saw so so dramatically, that in some ways the one thing that all the BRICs could agree on was the the, the benefits that the multilateral trade system, under stress from the Trump administration, had given them and that they want to continue into the future.
0: Well, on that rather positive note, I want to thank you, Andy, for uh, joining me here at our very plush studios at the Monk School, and uh, uh, thank you for spending some time with us talking about br- the bricks and the brick summits. Alan, my pleasure. Thank you.